Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mado, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. How's it going? Good. I'm really excited. We're talking all about Disney today. Today is the Disney episode. If you're a Disney person, then you're going to love this episode. If you're not, you're still going to love this episode. If this is not a banter, this is an entire episode of talking about Disney, specifically my Disney experience. So buckle up, uh, get ready to wish on a shooting star. Did I, is that right? I think this is going to be a Disney-heavy episode. And just to, to be clear here, we're not sponsored by Disney. In fact, if anyone's listening, they might you might hear some things that are like, come on, Disney, get your act together. So, you know, like we're not looking for sponsorship from Disney. Um, It's just, uh, I recently had an experience where I went to Disney World down in Florida and I kept copious notes that I felt like I needed to tell you about and tell all our listeners about stuff that I experienced, stuff that I was thinking, and just uh, in general talk about uh, my vacation. I love it, Chris. I I remember when you were there. What what, what month did you go? December, right? It was for for the holidays. Well, yeah. Yes. Okay. So he, let's get into it. So it was um, my wife and I were approached by my wife's uh, parents, so my my in laws. They are Disney Vacation Club members, and they said we want to take the entire family for uh, for birthdays and for uh, holiday presents. Our gift to you is to go down to Disney World for a week. Let's pick a week to do it. My wife and I are both administrators. We're not on a school schedule. Of course, our kids are both in public school. Um, But we thought, let's pick a time when we think no one will be at Disney, right? So we can get on the ride super fast and and it wouldn't be crowded. And so we started doing a little research. And of course, my in-laws are Disney fans. And so they have some insights on what we thought would be the best week of the year to go, which is um, we thought would be like the first or second week of December, right after Thanksgiving here in the States, right before the winter break. People oftentimes uh, will go to Disney for winter break or tack on to winter break, but or do that around Thanksgiving. But the week in between, typically slow. And boy, were we wrong, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> wow. People were all about it. Everyone thought the same thing, Chris. It's like, yes. let's go at this time, says everyone. Yes. Now, at the time that we were planning this, um, we, uh, uh, my in-laws were like, let's fly down there. And then uh, at the time we were planning it, airlines were a hot mess. And so the, the, the thought was, you know what? Let's drive. My, my in-laws live in northern Massachusetts. So they had to drive from Massachusetts down to us. Then we got in this giant suburban. My wife and I drove the rest of the way all the way down to Florida, um, and we engaged in this Disney experience. And that brings me to kind of the first point that I want to make about the Disney experience is that, you know, we stayed on the grounds. We were there for an entire week. We um, floated from park to park. Uh, we did the whole thing. And I don't know if our listeners have been there before, if they've never been there before, um, but one of the big I don't know, reflective moments I had, it was, um, I started thinking about this blog post I read years ago by someone named Christine Miserandino, uh, Miserandino, it's M-I-S-E-R-A-N-D-I-N-O. But what Christine writes in this blog post 
is that she has lupus and lupus is a, a disease that if you wouldn't you could see somebody you wouldn't know they have lupus right and she wrote this blog post called spoon theory which i may have mentioned uh, many many years ago on the podcast because it was one of those blog posts that was very influential in in my thinking around uh, people with illness and people with um, with disability. What she talks about in this blog post, this spoon theory blog post, is essentially she says, you know, if I were to go to a movie theater, um, my experience of going to a movie theater and experiencing a movie is going to be vastly different than maybe other people in that same movie theater experience because of my of, of lupus and she used the term spoons um to to talk about like energy points if you will like like we only have uh so much battery and uh, my battery my battery might drain a lot faster than your battery and if you think of them as points she called them spoons like i i wake up in the morning and i have a certain number of spoons in fact everybody wakes up in the morning we have a certain number of spoons and then based on what we do that day spoons are taken away so again you could think of it as points or, or uh, again draining of battery uh she just happened to use spoons and that really resonated with me with Disney because we would plan out the day like, okay, we're going to the Magic Kingdom and then we're going to jump on this ride. Um, we we took advantage of um, uh, you, when you go to Disney and you stay on the grounds, you can uh, go to a certain park that day an hour early than everybody else. Of course, still a lot, there's still a lot of people. And then you can get in line. <laughs> I was like, wow, are there like three people? No, right. there's like 3,000 people still. <laughs> so we'd plan that out, right? And the amount of spoons it would take for me and my family, the amount of communication it took was probably a lot less than if somebody, depending on the disability, might have, right? That planning, that executive function that they need to plan that out might cost them a lot more spoons than it cost me, right? And everybody might have uh, different different there. And I thought then as the day progressed, if you equate it to like a school day, we might often plot out like, okay, here's what a student is going to, or what a learner is going to do during, during that day, or even a, as an employee, what you might try to accomplish that day. And in the course of a Disney experience, how often we have to jag right or left, you know, we would pull up an app that says, oh my gosh, the Haunted Mansion's only at, uh, it's only got a 45 minute wait. Let's go over there right now. And even though we were planning to go to the, 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 I don't know, the seven dwarf mine roller coaster, you know, but we would make these snap judgments based on the data we have and then hightail it over there. And I just thought, that costs my family a certain number of spoons, but a different family with a different set of circumstances, with a with different um, uh, with different abilities, that might cost them a lot more spoons. Do you know what I mean? And so it just really got me reflecting on on that that concept of spoon theory, that how how reactive I could be and how other people could be, and how appreciative of what my circumstances are. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about this idea of spoons because <laughs> um, I always think about that with my students. So over the holiday break, I was seeing many of my students in the mornings and 
usually I see them after school when I feel like they've lost all their spoons <laughs> and my kids were like saying so much more and so much more engaged. And I was like, Oh man, like I just, it's so unfortunate that I have to wait until the end of the day when they're tired and they've worked all day to be doing my therapy. Um, so that is what this reminds me of is just like thinking about our students the timing really does matter when we are, you know, engaging with them and interacting with them and what we have as far as expectations of them. Just a side note there. uh, There is a whole book called when by someone named Daniel Pink uh, that talks about the power of when, when you want to do certain things. And so what you're saying there, I think there's actually science that sort of backs it up. He went and looked at the science behind when certain things like he he says, um, I would never go have surgery in the afternoon. I would always do it in the morning because there's a prevalency to make more mistakes in the afternoon than in the morning. And so he talks about, uh, you know, how the power of when and when you'd want to engage in certain activities. Fun fact, my mom for years, most of her career was an operating room nurse and she always said the same thing. She was like, do not get surgery anytime but the morning. You want to be the first one on the lineup. <laughs> um, all right. So back to Disney here. The next point that I want like to talk about is the our family decided to get what's called magic bands. Okay. So magic bands are these wrist bracelets that you pay for. And of course they have different tiers. There's magic band and then there's magic band plus that gets you even more experiences. But these are these bands that you strap on your wrist. And I was impressed about how these magic bands could help with accessibility, meaning, um, these helped me get into so you let's say um we got off a ride and you you know you got if you've ever been to an amusement park you get off a ride and they have monitors there and you can see a picture of yourself you know well again my in-laws wanted to pony up for the extra cash they got this photo booth experience so all we had to do to get those pictures was scan our wristband on this um this this little, I don't know, sensor. You know what I mean? It looked like a, um, in the way you might take your phone and pay for something, or you might use your credit card to tap. Uh, if you're familiar with that experience of paying for stuff, same idea. You just slap your band on this thing. It would spin with a green light and boom, now it's collected it to your, your cloud environment. Same way actually to get into the park is you slap this on the same thing and you um, put your fingerprint on it and suddenly you're in. And I was just really impressed. And I really thought, um, where else could we use technology like this to get through doors, to pay for your um, for your lunch in school? It really got me thinking about how the technology around this magic band could be used to Im- increase or improve accessibility for, for lots of people. And in fact, it doesn't even have to go on your wrist. I mean, I wore it on the wrist, but I've saw some people wear it around lanyards and really it's, of course it's Disney. So you could get different bands. So it's this really, it's a microchip inside a thing that sort of looks like a watch, right? Um, you can trade out the different bands and things like that, but it really thought what, what a microchip that you could just tap, you know, how would, how much would that improve accessibility for people? Yeah. I mean, I think about that all the time when I'm like, you know, at CVS or all these places that I'm like, Ooh, what is this like new technology that this location has just installed? Um, it's interesting to kind of watch how 
some companies and some organizations and some places are really technology forward and then the opposite, right? Like we also have so many places that I'm like, why are we still doing it this way? Like this makes everything way harder and is super challenging. Um, so it's just like, it always fascinates me when people aren't, they're really late adopters of technology. Well, and I have more to say. I clearly have more to say about Disney because um, in some regards, like this is a great boon for accessibility. At least I felt like it was. Um, but there are there's more stuff on my list I'm going to talk about, Rachel, where it's like it doesn't seem like there's this global thought from this this massive company about accessibility. Um, so I'm going to give some examples. It's foreshadowing for what we're going to come what I'm going to talk about here in a second. <laughs> Um, so something else that, um, I noticed from the accessibility realm was that there was, um, now my wife and I have not been to Disney probably in 15 to 20, I mean, I guess 15. Yeah. Cause Tucker was, was small at the time. Uh, so I, I'm going to ballpark it at 15 years since I've been there. But one of the things I noticed this time around 15 years later was that a number of people that were accessing the park by moving around the park through these mobility carts. So you might see these at grocery stores where people drive around in the, and, and you could rent a cart and you could drive around. And there was, um, a, a noticeable, increase, at least in my view, of uh, the number of people that were accessing the park this way, driving around. And I didn't get the impression these were all people with disabilities, which, again, this is something that I really reflect on a lot in my own uh, work uh, in this space, is this is just technology that helps anyone. Anyway, you don't have to necessarily have a disability. Maybe your spoons run out so a lot faster than other people, and so you need this. Maybe you've been injured in some way that is not necessarily apparent, and uh, you know, to the to to someone looking, and so you need the cart, or maybe for forever family reason, whatever it might be. And it seems like people are taking advantage of this technology, not necessarily because you have a disability, but because you have just, for whatever reason, you need the cart. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons that people need help and assistance for a variety of different reasons. And it's just really cool that we have that ability now. Um, and it's like, it's taking me to our talk, Chris, our six hour talk where you talk about how, you know, things that started off for people with disabilities are now universal to all. And I feel like this is no exception. I wonder if we could ever get to the day, if we could imagine a day where we don't really put things in two categories of disabled or non-disabled. Um, but instead we reflect on everybody's abilities, um, without just slapping that label on them. You know what I mean? Why you got to put the label on it? Right. And it's also this, like these buckets, right. And it's really just, there's so many nuances. So it's just like really a sliding scale. And I think that we do a disservice when we're like, either you're, you know, disabled or not. And it's like, well, like it's not that black and white, right? Like anything else in life. Um, I think it's just a sliding scale of different abilities. Agreed. And I think if there was like, uh, uh, disability advocates listening to us right now, they'd be like, but we need that right now because the, uh, if we don't, then there's th there, 
people might be uh, – that's why we need these laws and we need these these things to exist. Again, for the lack of a better word, a label of dis- disabled because otherwise people will discriminate, right? Yeah. And so they're not – we're not quite there yet, but I'm looking forward to the future when we are looking at individual uh, abilities and not these two buckets. Well, and I think it's more about when we're creating, right? Like when we're innovating, when we're figuring out technology, um, it feels like it has to be the situation where, okay, like this person needs this, like they can't access anything without it. How can we make that easier? Um, It just feels like it's kind of this trickle down effect that happens with the masses. And, you know, how can we just open open up the perspective to say like we should be driving this type of design for everyone and I think that's where like the labels are important to obviously get the supports that people need and there's lots of laws in place that are really helpful and supportive to people with disabilities I think it's more like the driving of design and the innovating with technology that really needs to be opened up to thinking like more broad. Yeah, and certain companies have already started to move that way. They understand the advantage of doing that. It opens up their customer base. It makes it more inclusive. There's they they are hiring people with diverse backgrounds so that they get even better products and go. Ah, if you do it this way, you're going to leave this group out. Um, so uh, I think there's certain companies that are that are embracing that and. In some respects, Disney has done something, again, focusing our conversation on Disney, Disney has done that. And yet, <laughs> let me tell you about this. So uh, one of our experiences was gone. We went to Epcot and we go to this ride called Spaceship Earth. Now, Spaceship Earth, you might not know this ride, but you certainly know the Epcot globe, right? That big sphere, that that uh, iconic sphere. Well, this is the ride inside that sphere, right? So we go onto the ride and it sort of takes you, it's a slow moving ride, you climb on it and it um, takes you through these old animatronic um, uh scenes of history and it's narrated by uh judy dench you know so um uh so there's this you know uh, uh regal voice kind of buzzing in your ear talking about um you know what you're seeing as you're as you're as you're going down this path but the phoenicians who trade with all of them have a solution they create a simple common alphabet adaptable to most languages there's this one chunk of audio that i was like what the heck is because it's an old ride right and it just shows where we've grown from our ableist language right so we're going past this um this one part about the phoenicians and they're talking judy dench is talking about how the reason we have an alphabet is because of the phoenicians and the phoenicians were the first ones to create this alphabet and then she says this line remember how easy it was to learn your abcs thank the phoenicians which, if you just heard it, says um, <laughs> something like, uh, remember how easy it was for you to learn the alphabet? And I was just blown away by the ableism of that comment. Like, how many people with dyslexia or who have worked so hard to learn to decode text would be like, it wasn't easy at all for me to learn text. What are you saying, Judy Dench? Of course, Judy Dench is not her fault. She's reading a script. But it was like, this is such a, this would never be written today because some, I hope it would never be written today. Someone would go, 
What? No, how about there's a whole community of people out there that work extra hard to learn how to read and you're not, it's not just easy, you know? Uh, it just came glaring to me that this was an old ride and how far we've come with that language. Yeah, that feels really alarming to hear in 2023. And I don't know how many people would be like, I live and work in this space and work with people um, trying to educate people around literacy. You know what I mean? So for me, it was glaring. But I wonder how many, your typical person going to Disney was that going to raise hackles on the back of their neck? I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully a lot, but I don't know. So in ref in response to uh, like that one one moment, it really got me reflecting and uh, about the accessibility in general about uh, all of the rides and what we would experience kind of when you're waiting in line or as you go up to it. And one thing I noticed that was commonplace in every you go to Disney, you eat a little bit, you know, you go to the different restaurants. Um, there were signs everywhere and it was very in your face about being respectful around allergies you know this is you know peanut allergies uh, uh, whenever we sat down and we talked to a uh, a waiter or a waitress uh, the service staff that was a clearly they had spent some time in training to remember to ask all right what allergies do we have at the table here you know um okay mango like not even what you're going to order like that was one of the first questions they asked um and it was like yes that shows a, a tr an effort to try and be inclusive but also i thought also because you probably don't want lawsuits you probably don't want someone to have this this major reaction you know what i mean there are health concerns rather than accessibility concerns around that question but you could clearly see that there was effort put into the respectfulness around allergies yeah, I've worked with some students with very, very severe allergies to the point where they can't even be in the same room as something that touched a peanut or something like that. And my heart really goes out for those families and those kids because they have to be so hyper vigilant. And, you know, we take for granted the fact that we can just like, you know, go somewhere, get something like it might have touched a, a peanut or a mango or whatever. And it doesn't, you know, affect us and it's not life threatening. Um, so yeah, that really resonates because I, I've worked with families where it's just like, we have to wash down all of the materials and just like be very, very vigilant. Now what, um, was, was not as apparent and actually blatantly left out in my view were some very basic accessibility things in some of the rides. And in fact, some of the new rides. Um, when we went to, there's a new ride in Epcot called about Guardians of the Galaxy. And uh, we, we rode that ride because we, you know, we're huge Marvel fans. And of course we were going to ride that. And, uh, uh, side note, years ago, my family dressed as the Guardians of the Galaxy for a Halloween contest and won, like won the big contest because we were all dressed. I was Groot, you know, I am Groot. Um, so of course we were going to ride this. And in this experience, um, you watch uh, videos like you're waiting in line and you see video monitors and the, you know, Chris Pratt is there talking to Rocket Raccoon and then there's no captions like it's not there. There are no, no captions on these videos. And even when you go into the then the, the actual experience and you're watching some sort of like preliminary video, no captions, but other rides that were older did have captions they were they were embedded like uh the the pandora ride the ha, has captions in them it's like how did you 
how did you have it at one point and let it slip through your fingers that you that, that captions are just not automatically on, you know? Um, and that was, I'm just giving one example. There were plenty of other examples where, you know, my family knows now to be like, dad, look, no captions. You know, I'm like, yeah, what the heck? Where are the captions? Um, that was apparent to me. And then in line with that, Rachel, was... There, of course, at Disney, there are shows. You know what I mean? You can go and you can watch performances and things. And both the rides and the shows, it was not apparent to me that there were any sensory safe experiences. Like, come at this time for this, you know, how you might um, go to the theater and they'd have, we're going to leave the lights up or uh, they'll make adjustments to take the set loud, loud noises down or things like that, that the theater might have specific performances meant to help to, again, invite people with different sensory needs to participate in this experience. There was nothing like that apparent to me, which then, of course, made me uh, wonder, did it exist? And someone would have to do how many, again, how many more spoons would it take? All right. I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a parent and my child has a disability and I know they have these needs and I got to go seek this out. And it's a whole nother level of work and a level of effort that has to be put on top of just planning Disney, which is not easy in the first place. So I thought maybe there could be some effort here to, to say here, you know, make it more apparent that, that these are when they're, if they, if they even exist at all, Rachel, that these would be, you know, this, this, this roller coaster that's in the dark with these flashing lights at this time, we're going to turn the lights on. You know what I mean? And the loud rock and roll music that's playing in the background, actually, we're going to dampen that for, you know, for this particular ride. I didn't see anything like that. Yeah, you know, and I think that what's unfortunate is that oftentimes families that have children, especially with sensory differences, they just like kind of globally opt out of all of those things. And it's just so unfortunate because if there were just a few tweaks made by the company, the organization, the place, then think about how much experience that could be. What a great experience that could be for kids that don't often get to participate because of their sensory differences, you know? Um, so I oftentimes think about that with my families is like, they're not able to have you know, uh, an experience with their child, um, just because of sensory differences, which is something that we can change and we can, you know, change for the, for, for students who are struggling with sensory differences. So the next experience that I want to tell you about is kind of unique. And again, I feel really fortunate. And that is we got a private tour guide to take us around for a couple hours, drive us in a, in a van, go to behind the scenes. Like we would park in behind the scenes parking lot where the cast members park, go in the secret entrances, you know, um, we didn't go into the mythical tunnels. I mean, I guess they're the real tunnels underneath, but you know, just back lot things. We got to see some of the rides from behind and, and it was a really fun experience. The person driving us around, these people are called plaids because they wear plaid vests, right? And you get one assigned to you for your number of hours that you're going on this tour. So of course I started to picking her brain about, tell me about, you know, what kind of training do you get around accessibility and the language you use and that kind of stuff? You know, I'm going to take this opportunity if I get the chance, right? And so, you know, she was very friendly and so nice. And what she told us was there is specific training that they get because they're moving with families for building a small relationship with them for, you know, a couple of hours. And it can really be a make or break it relationship. You know what I mean? For the experience. And and so she, she said they get specific training around the language to use 
around cultural and gender identification. So really trying to be uh, affirming of that language. And we try and do that on this podcast. You know, I think that is uh, something we all try and do, especially in the educational space. Is that fair? Yes. And then I said, of course, you know where I'm going, said, what about people with disabilities? And she said, nothing. There's not, it's not mentioned at all. And she said a lot of her learning that she's done is, of course, people have stories. She's like, I have a brother that has a disability. So I have some awareness of um, maybe what to say or what not to say and how to change my language to be more respectful and more inclusive and not accidentally offend anybody. And she gave an example where she said, you know, once I was doing this, uh, I had a, had a group, I had a family and a group and I was, and she said for, for, for ages, I was just like, okay, walk up to that line and we're going to walk over here. We're going to walk over there. And the person that came in this particular group was in a wheelchair. And now every time I was like, well, walk, uh, walk, and she's like, she had to consciously change her her as to be like, why am I saying walk? I don't have to say walk. I can say move. I can pick a different, more inclusive verb uh, as to, and she, of course, she's not, she's not being, she's not doing it. Um, she's trying to be sensitive. She's trying to be inclusive. And you could see the effort that she was making. The point that I'm trying to make here is that that was not baked into her training. Right? And there is this, I mean, 12 to 13% of the population has a disability and that number goes up when you think about temporary disabilities. Oh, a person broke their leg and they're in a wheelchair. You know what I mean? Um, and there's there, there was no systematic training around it. It was sort of like figure it out. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought that there's a place where you could really, in trying to design this inclusive experience for people, you could really make a difference. You know? Yeah. And you'd think with a company as large as Disney that they would have someone on staff to like, or some type of, I don't know, process to kind of check to make sure we hit these basic accessibility features like captions, for example. Um, it's just interesting to think that like, there's no processes in place for something like that. Yes. In, an, in a quick analogy there is something we advocate for in schools is to have like a chief accessibility officer or a, a committee that when anything goes out, you might run something through them and they could give you feedback on how to improve that accessibility so that you're building in some sort of systemic way of increasing and improving accessibility. You would think Disney would have that too, right? That there would be not just some parts of it, but every ride, every kiosk, every hotel service, you know what I mean, is, has some sort of, every training is touched, accessibility is touched on there. And with a greater accessibility one being one smaller part, of building an inclusive experience, you know, a culture of inclusivity. And you have to figure that a company like Disney probably has, you know, wheelchair ramps and things like that. But I mean, obviously that's the law. And I think that we, we think about it like, well, they can participate, but like thinking to the next step is, can they fully participate, you know, depending on their disability? I think that oftentimes we, we see a lot of companies focus on physical disabilities like wheelchairs and things like that. But obviously we know that there's all types of disabilities. There's hearing impairment, visual impairment, you know, all those kinds of disabilities that are just, you know, not 
considered, I think, as much um, as physical disabilities with people in wheelchairs. You know, it's so true, Rachel. And again, that's true for schools is that um, I was just in a meeting yesterday where this uh, uh, disability advocate was saying there seems to be still uh, prevalent, like people will when you think of accessibility, you mean access for people who are blind, <laughs> but that's like, there's a, a, not every disability. Again, a way that you could maybe educate people is by having people that are, their specific job is to look at this and maybe even hire some people with disabilities themselves who can then reflect on it. Let me, let me test this experience out or be on this committee or be the chief accessibility officer that um, has some experience where you don't, you know? Yeah, I think that's really smart. So um, something that Disney uh, has done is they have built in some scavenger hunt experiences in line with their mobile app and then in different parks. And I am a scavenger hunt nut, you know what I mean? I helped design with the Inclusive 365 crew uh, something called the Wonderfully Inclusive Scavenger Hunt. We did that back at ISTE. Um, if you're in the Patreon, you know you've got links to it. And, uh, and, and of course, we're doing that. Um, we're going to do that at ATIA again. You were there when we did it in Indiana. We love, I love scavenger hunts. I love doing scavenger hunts. And Disney has scavenger hunts. So when... Um, my family was in line at Space Mountain, one of the most famous rides at Disney. They have a number of codes printed all over the 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 ride, um, the line reading up to the to the to the ride, where you could see these four digit codes painted someplace. Be like. And I'd be like, Tucker, there's one, there's one. He had the app. Maggie would be like, I see one, Dad, you know. There's one on the floor. We missed it. And you, you could, and there's one behind that window. Do you see it? Like these obscure plates, some were really obvious and some were more obscure. You plug them in and then it reveals some sort of um, experience on the mobile app, which we just, it ate up time in the line. It gave us something to look for. Super fun. Again, you have to be able to see <laughs> to be able to do it. But still, it was a, a, a fun way of... Um, killing time in the line and communication opportunities and all that, right? Same thing, same experience when we went to um, one of the rides in Pandora, which is the Avatar ride. Uh, you're walking through a cave and there are symbols painted on the cave. And so you're looking for these symbols. You, they'd come up on your on your app, like, here's this person uh, flying on a glider. And you'd be like, there it is. I see the, the painting there and mark off that we found it. You know, and again, just a fun way to, 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 to enhance communication. Of course, I'm thinking, how could we do fun stuff like that around the, the school building and what kind of core words could we hide and find and um, all sorts of like, you know, what kind of numbers could we find and letters for literacy and all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I just love that idea of hunting for hidden things. I've always loved the idea of an extra layer on top of um, of things that, that maybe even not everybody knows is there. So, for instance, in um, in every book I've I've... I've written, and in fact, the old AT Tips cast, there's um, some episodes and some pages in the books that have like a hidden code message in them. So if you can decipher it, you even realize it. It's not absolutely necessary to engage in the experience, you know, but if you do know the riddle, if you do see it, you're like, oh my gosh, how fun is that, you know? Um, in the same way, Rachel, if you've ever seen a movie and there's um, uh, a phone number is displayed or in the background there's a phone number or something, you're like, I wonder if that's a real phone number. And you type it in. And there's a character that might talk to you. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's real, you know, or um, in the, 
Marvel has done this recently with some of their shows where they'll hide QR codes in scenes. And so if you can't scan the QR code, you get like a free comic or something like that. So I just have always loved things like that. And Disney seemed to do that again, not super accessible, but it was super fun in thinking about how could we do this in a, in an avenue for for learners and of all ages, you know, to build that in professional learning experiences like we did with the wonderfully inclusive scavenger hunt. So I just thought that was super fun. Chris, it sounds like you had an amazing time at Disney. I did. I did. But I have more to tell you about the, the scavenger hunts. And so just let me squeeze it in here. Um, uh, there was a QR code hunt in the Star Wars area where we would go and you find these QR codes. So again, sort of like finding these same codes. I found that was super fun because you know, in every presentation we do, Rachel, it starts off, it has QR codes. We have QR codes to the jam boards we use and QR codes to the padlets we use and QR codes to get the slide deck, you know, because it really helps with accessibility. I don't have to type in all of these letters and try and remember them. And what was it? B-I-T-L, B-I-T-L. T dot L. Oh, I forgot the slash. Oh, is it X three G Y nine? You know, no, it's scan the QR code. It's two hits, you know, phone app. Boom. I've got the slides on my device. So it's an accessibility boon for some, uh, if you can scan the QR code. And the second thing I want to tell you about scavenger hunts, uh, maybe we'll leave it with this idea, Rachel is at the magic kingdom. There is a hidden scavenger hunt well, actually, I guess there's two things I got to tell you. One is you probably saw my pictures. If you if you follow me on Instagram, on Instagram, Rachel, or Facebook, if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, did you see my Olaf posts? I did. Yes. So there was a scavenger hunt where they had hidden a statue of Olaf in each of the different lands at Epcot. Epcot is this, if you've never been there, it's a there's a giant circle around a lake, and it's got all of these different fake versions of countries, you know, and they hid uh, different Olafs and my family was uh, obligated with other things and I was alone for a little time and I went around and I found all these little Olafs and took pictures. So go look me up on Instagram to see my my Olaf pictures. Um, but the one I really want to tell you about was the Magic Kingdom one. There was a Pirates of the Caribbean experience that most people, I think, just walk by, glance over. They didn't know. But um, every line and every uh, – the, the kids were tired, so it was just Melissa and I. And the every line and every ride was super busy, super packed. And so I said, hey, what about this scavenger hunting? Let's go check it out. And so we go into this hut, and there's a person dressed as a pirate, and they're like hidden around – the Magic Kingdom, specifically around the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, uh, there are these interactive experiences where, again, you touch your magic band to this hidden little emblem that's that you might everyone else might just walk by, but if you touch this emblem, something different will happen. Like, in fact, my son and I got off the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean ride and we were walking through the gift shop. We saw this little empty box. We're like, oh, they must have removed something here. Well, day later, my wife and I are doing the scavenger hunt scan it and this box comes to life and there's like a, a thing inside this box that is this hidden if you didn't do the scavenger hunt you wouldn't know that this was there one of course i love designing experiences like this these hidden layers but the second thing is we go to the kiosk to get the little map that has the clues to help you find these things and the only maps they have are in portuguese rachel and um I mean, I know you, you, you might not realize this, but I don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> I don't read Spoiler Portuguese. Alert, I don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> My wife doesn't speak Portuguese. She knows a little Spanish. She's about better than I am. But we're looking at this thing and they're like, sorry, we don't have any English maps. So it's like, no problem here. 
I'm in technology. So I whip out my phone. I open up uh, Google, Google, the, uh, the Google app. Google has, you don't even need a separate app now because it's built right in. If you look at the search bar, there's a little uh, square and that square is a image reader. I, I literally, it did a translation. I literally hovered over the map and it translated it from English or from Portuguese into English and I could access the map, which I was just like, thank you, technology. Thank you. Because I don't know that I would have been able to gauge in this super, or for me, it was super fun learning experience, fun experience of walking around and seeing these different um, animations and different little, uh, I don't know, hidden, hidden pirates experience that I would have otherwise, I did the whole thing. I did, it was, there was four different maps you could go get and I went and saw all of them because I'm a super nerd that way. So, so that was my, that was part of my Disney experience. I got a couple other points I'd love to make. So let's come back and do it for a banter. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Can't wait for part two. 